Greetings and welcome to another episode of Stanford Cinema, the film discussion podcast where you choose it, I watch it, and we discuss it. As always, I'm your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for downloading this latest episode. If you are new to the podcast, well, first off, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, for finding me. Please do me a favor and subscribe to the, the show. Tell your friends. Leave a review. Speaking of reviews, you can do them on Apple Podcasts or even easierly. Is that a word, easierly? I don't think so. Um, you can visit my website, stampercinema.com, and you can leave a review there. And speaking of my website, not only can you leave a review, but you can listen to the, the show there. You can read some of my blogs. I've got a few out. Um, you can leave a voicemail, kind of a fun feature. You can actually like leave a little note. So if you have any questions uh, from something you hear, we can, we can have like a little mailbag. And not only that, maybe even the coolest thing is if you really want to be super awesome, you can even leave a donation. There's a, the, the means for you to give me a little something, something. Uh, of course, even if you don't, that's fine. You can always listen to the show. I don't charge, but um, just, you know, something kind of fun. So give me your money. No. Um, anyway, moving along. In today's episode, we're going to shake things up a little bit. Now, normally when we have a show on, we talk about one particular film uh, that our guest brings to the table. But today's guest, Lolly Davidson, a writer, a teacher, she'll be out here shortly. I'll introduce her. But she had a genius idea that, you know what? We should talk just some Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan being the filmmaker responsible for The Haunting of um, Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor and several films, uh, which will I'll, I'll kind of like go in, kind of like do like a little, uh, I don't know, like a, a little Cliff Notes wiki uh, kind of uh, summary. But anyway, that's what we're going to be talking about. And it's really fitting because of the fact that at the time of publishing, it's Friday the 13th. So ooh, in October, so that's kind of like a double. Ooh, uh, I love it. I mean, this is this is really great. And we're also, again, talking about Mike Flanagan, who has a brand new show dropping. In fact, I think it just just dropped on Netflix. Mike Flanagan has kind of like a partnership with Netflix. Um, Fall of the House of Usher, which is based on the old like Edgar Allan Poe uh, work of the same title. Now, I think that just dropped. So it's available now. I haven't seen it, but I'm hopeful. I mean, he's done really incredible stuff. So Mike Flanagan's been in the industry for the better part of like 15 years. He, I think his full length uh, debut film was in 2011, but he followed it up with Oculus, which was my introduction. I think that came out in like 2013, 2012, 2013, thereabouts. And movies scare the shit out of me, just absolutely terrified me. And it's great. I, I think it might be available on Netflix and such a good ghost story introduced me to a couple like hotties uh, in Karen Gillan and Kate Siegel. And Kate Siegel would then go on to marry Mike Flanagan. And she's been in a bunch of stuff that he's done. Actually, Mike Flanagan has this tradition of basically using the same actors in a multitude of his films. So you have a lot of, uh, you know, continuity. Uh, when you when you look at Kate Siegel's in a lot of his stuff, Carlo Giugino's or Gugino, Giugino uh, is a lot of the stuff that he's done. Henry Henry Thomas, so like e, rather Elliot from E.T. Um, but... I think Mike Flanagan might be most recognized for for directing Dr. Sleep, which I don't know how he did it, to be honest with you, because of the fact that uh, Dr. Sleep is the, the sequel to The Shining, you know, written by Stephen King. Of course, uh, Dr. Sleep was written by Stephen King. Now, again, Mike Flanagan did the film version of Dr. Sleep, which is a sequel to The Shining. But there's a little problem. The book the Shining and the movie The Shining that came out like 1980 are very, very different, very different tonally. Uh, the endings are different, just completely different kind of vibe. Now, they're both brilliant in their own respects, but it'd be hard to make a sequel, a film sequel to a movie that kind of veers so significantly. But Mike Flanagan did a really impressive job in that he kind of like bridged that gap so beautifully. So for those that are uh, like Stephen King, who, in a word, to say that he uh, didn't enjoy uh, Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining would be an understatement. Um, but Stephen King loved Dr. Sleep because Mike Flanagan was able to, one, uh, please the, 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 the Shining purists, but also 
please the Stanley Kubrick fans. And it's really quite remarkable in the way that he did it. So like mad shout out to him. Uh, But that wasn't like the the, the first Stephen King like adaptation he did because he also did Gerald's Game, like which another another thing that should not have worked. I mean, the whole movie basically takes place in a bedroom with like Carla Gugino, like handcuffed to her bedposts. Meanwhile, like her her husband's like dead body played by was it uh, my God, Greenwood. I can't believe I read it. Is it Sam Greenwood? Is that right? Um, Shit, it will come to me. Um, But yeah, basically Carly Gugino is like handcuffed to her, like her bedpost the entire film and, you know, has like some like visions and it just does not seem like it would be a movie that would work, but yet Mike Flanagan did it and crushed it. So yeah. Yeah. And very, very impressive. But we're not going to be talking about uh, Doctor Sleep, and we're not going to be talking about Gerald's Game. We are going to be to- uh, we are going to be covering the Haunting of Hill House and the Haunting of Bly Manor. Um, if there's time, you know, we're going to try to we're going to try to keep this streamlined, and obviously, want to have a, a really rich conversation about about Lolly Davidson and you know her her latest novel because she's got something brand new, but also kind of her process, uh, what that looks like. So we've got a really really heavily heavily uh, packed, jam-packed, if you will, episode today. So first up, we've got The Haunting of Hill House, which is loosely based on like the 1958 novel of the same name. And what we've now got within like The Haunting of Hill House is essentially it's like a supernatural horror miniseries. Now, if you're wondering, wait, wasn't there a movie already called The Haunting of Hill House? Yes. Yes, there was. Uh, It came out like the 60s. And then the 90s, there's a movie called The Haunting, it's same thing, quite frankly, but that one was pretty bad. I, if memory serves, I think it had like um, Owen Wilson. I think he, his head gets like lopped off by like like a grandfather clock. I think something like that. It wasn't particularly good. I think Liam Neeson might have been in it as well. Um, came out the same year that you had. Not only was like the Haunting of Hill House, but you had the House on Haunted Hill, uh, a remake as well. That was like an old like what is it, William Castle film um in the in the 60s or and and then they they put that movie out in the 90s so hollywood has this thing where they like all right one one studio is going to do that we'll do this and it'll basically be the same movie we'll confuse the audience and i'm probably confusing the hell out of you right now so let me backtrack and actually talk about what the haunting of hill house is it's essentially like a supernatural horror mini series and we've got um show about the crane family the mom and dad and their five kids uh let me see if i got this right so you got steven you got shirley you got theo you've got luke and now and basically what we've got is you've got like a, a two timeline story you've got the crane kids as children and then you got the crane kids as a jolt uh, as adults and the timelines kind of like go back and forth because so you see what happened while they were living at hill house and what how that affected them and like what the you know what the the ramifications were and then you see them as adults and what that experience did because without like giving any spoilers tragedy befalls them in the house and then we're picking up 26 years later where tragedy strikes them again as adults and then they are kind of like forced to um reconnect and experience those events kind of um all over again I mean, it's an absolutely brilliant show. It's terrifying in many respects. Uh, audiences love it. Critics love it. Uh, I've, I've referenced the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, but it won Best Series uh, back in, I think, like 2019, maybe 2020 thereabouts. But fantastic show. And we'll, we'll t- reference a couple episodes in particular without giving any spoilers away. I'm not going to spoil anything. Uh, but Haunting of Hill House, it stars Michael Hoosman, Carla G- uh, Gugino. And again, I'm, if I'm butchering her name, you guys are like, like dying inside. I'm sorry. Uh, Timothy Hutton, uh, Oliver Jackson Cohen, Kate Siegel, obviously, uh, Victoria Pedretti, and um, a really, really great group of young, young actors. And then Annabeth Gish is in it as well. The music was by the Newton Brothers. Um, Mike Flanagan has this tradition of always using the Newton Brothers, and their their music is beautiful. Both of these uh, these scores are absolutely fantastic. So uh, what else can I say? Is that is that about it? Um, 
I'll probably mention a little bit, but I was introduced. I was introduced to the show a couple of years ago. I used to do uh, virtual watch parties. You know, I've, I've referenced Stream Lounge on here before. Unfortunately, Stream Lounge is no longer with us. RIP. But I used to watch it with a with a group of like ten to fifteen people, and it was so much fun. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this show. Um, we will cover Bly Manor, which different different plot as well. I enjoyed that. Uh, full disclosure. Didn't enjoy it as much as I did Hill House. I think was just so much stronger, but the Bly Manor is still very, very enjoyable. I can say it's a little bit more of like a gothic ghost romance store than like an out and out horror like series because it's there are some scary things that happen, obviously, but it's it's definitely more of a show uh, that has a like a slow burn kind of like gothic feel to it, but it does in the end really, really pay off. They, the show does a really great job of being very non-linear and kind of tackles the idea of like ghosts as time travelers in a way. Um, same, similar cast that you saw in Hill House is in Bly Manor. So you've got, you've got, I'm not even gonna say her last name, but you've got Carla again. Uh, you got Kate Siegel, Victoria Pedretti, Oliver Jackson Cohen. And, um, and again, tons of really, really great tons. There are two really young actors in in blind manner and they're and they're fantastic um but oliver jackson cohen um is really good in this and if i can like i don't know like offer kind of like a dark horse uh james bond uh replacement i might i might suggest him he's he's big dude uh, i think he can he could probably maybe maybe i don't know we'll have to see what you guys think but i think he might be able to be like a, a dark horse uh james bond replacement um, but in Bly Manor, you basically have like this non-linear ghost story about like this au pair that's hired by like this rich dude to look after his like his niece and nephew. And so she stays at their country, uh, their country house or their country manor, Bly Manor, and ghosts happen. Uh, mystery happens, death happens, obviously. And within the final episodes, everything kind of comes together. And like Hill House, it was you know based on previous material. Like this turn, uh, no, I'm sorry, it was called um, the the turn of the screw. Now I haven't read it, but the show is good, so take that at at, at face value. I think that's about it. So if you're still listening to me after that lengthy uh, rant, now listen. Part of the reason why I did it is because of y'all. You guys have said that I need to paint a little bit more of a picture uh, prior to these interviews. So hopefully, hopefully I succeeded and you got a little taste of how disjointed my brain works. So let's transition into the more interesting part as far as I'm concerned, and that is the guest. And I'm extremely excited because we've got Lolly Davidson. Uh, she's a writer. She's a teacher, um, all around great human being. And she's got a few books already under her belt, a brand, brand new book, uh, Beyond Sight, available now. And I haven't read it yet, but the blurb, as I understand it, is in scenic Saratoga Springs, ghosts of a dark capitalist past awaken and challenge a young woman's power. That's pretty cool. I'm enticed. So we're going to bring Lolly on right now, and she's going to tell us a little bit about, about that, a little bit about herself. And of course... Why she want to talk a little bit about Mike Flanagan on this Friday, the 13th episode. Well, again, Lolly, hello. How are you? Thank you very much for hopping on the podcast. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Now, obviously, uh, I, I introduced you in my introduction, but for the, the listeners, if you wouldn't mind, you know, sometimes it's better for uh, the guests to say a little bit about themselves, as you know yourself a whole lot better than I do, as we, you know, are brand new to each other. So what can uh, you tell the listeners about you? Well, I've been teaching writing for 30 years at um, SUNY Adirondack. I graduated from Oberlin College. I studied creative writing there, but that, but it wasn't my major. And then I went into um, went to graduate school at, at the University of Albany, met a wonderful group of students, um, and we did all kinds of performance work. Um, and then I've been writing, you know, teaching like crazy and keeping the writing, the embers alive, but not really having time to to publish until recently. So then I found um, Red Penguin Books and they signed a three book contract with me, which I was able to do because, you know, and they want them to come out one after another very fast. And I was able to do that because I had stockpiled 20 years of work. So the, my first one, uh-oh, my background is, is, is conflicting. Uh, hold on a second. Let me 
Um, whoops. If I can get rid of my background here. Is that, uh, is this what, against the grain? My first one is called Blue Woman Burning. Mm. And um, then, uh, then uh, that is a kind of a magic realist novel, a kind of a coming of age novel. And it's about a woman, a young woman whose mother vanishes in this surprising way um, in the desert, in the Altiplano between Chile and Bolivia. And it's sort of loose, very loosely based on um, my life growing up. My mother did not vanish. She lived to the age of 99. Um, but we did have some mysterious lights appear to us on that Altiplano. And um, then uh, then we did, oh, let's see, maybe you can see that yep. now. Oh, there it is. Yep. Mm -hmm. There it is, Blue Woman Burning. Um, and uh, then I wrote Against the Grain, which at first it was a um, screenplay, um, and it was based on the Redwood Summer of 1990, where in Northern California, where the activists were doing things like tree sitting and sabotaging machinery just to save the old growth redwoods. And it's actually the subject of Richard Powers' book, The Overstory. Um, and that has a, all of my books have a kind of a magical element. I tend, tend to write in the kind of magical realist realm, which is not quite fantasy. It's kind of like you're straddling both worlds. Yeah. What so, is that? Like, what does that really mean? Well, I, it actually comes, it's a, it's a term that was coined by, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who wrote a hundred years of solitude. And I, and it, what it means is that you have this very ordinary realistic reality, but then these kind of surreal things happen in it's if it's ordinary, but it's also like it may be a metaphor. So, for example, one young man is shot and when he shot, his blood drops to the ground and, you know, and goes down the street, turns right and goes up to the porch steps and returns to his mother. So these kind of symbolic things occur. Um, I like to think of it as like when you're reading a book and you're not sure um, if it's real or not, if it's in the person's imagination or they're losing their mind, that's a little bit magic realism. Mm -hmm. It's kind of it comes from the clash of cultures, a clash of realities. And I play a lot around, I think a lot about what is real, you know, and, and that's also become, you know, a very contested question in America today, unfortunately. So, but in this book, uh, the trees have a voice and I was very proud of that, how to make the trees sound like trees and not like humans, but still speak in English. Um, <laughs> and then my third novel, uh, Beyond Sight, is, um, that is probably straight up fantasy in the sense that it's a, a world in which ghosts exist. Um, although the protagonist doesn't believe in them at the beginning. Um, and then I have a book of short stories that that are kind of uh, experimental. You know, my shorter work is more experimental and my longer work is written to to both be thought provoking, but also really engage the reader. I, I like, you know, I like a plot that pulls you along. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned like your your new novel. I mean, it's it's very, very new, like so new that it just came out, right? Yes, Beyond Sight. I just had my sort of book launch at the bookstore locally here and just got my hands on the first copies, you know, a few days ago. So that was pretty exciting. So since this is brand new, what can you what, what can you tell us about it? Well, it's the main character is uh, her name is Julie Sykes, and she has been suppressing. She has these supernatural powers. She she sees the energy inside people in, at the sort of the subatomic level. And she doesn't her mother has really given her the message that this is that she does not want to hear about this, that this is bad, that she should stop you know, talking about these things. And her father has died and her mother also won't talk about that either. But she meets this young man, uh, Damien, and they connect on a certain level and they decide to investigate a haunted house, which was built by a black, a, fa a farming family who was black in the 1890s. And now it's been abandoned and the owner was sort of, um, you know, they tried to seize the house by eminent domain and he died in the process. So Damien and Julie decide to go and investigate and Damien becomes possessed by a, a malignant spirit. And so she has to finally pull out her supernatural powers to save him and, you know, to figure out what it is that is haunting him. So there's also a backstory. We start, you know, the mystery of why her, how her father died. And then I took some real history from Saratoga Springs um, which is, you know, it's a it's a tourist town famous for its racetrack. 
it was really the, the destination place in the 189, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Um, and there was this true real guy named Henry Hilton who came into his fortune by really nefarious means. He was mm. the lawyer for the fourth wealthiest man in the country. And he somehow ended up with all this man's money when he died. And then he came to Saratoga Springs and built these lavish mansions, like six of them for himself and his sons and his daughters. And then when he he squandered all his money and when he died, those houses were tied up in legal battles and were eventually abandoned and they all rotted to the ground. So... Um, I, could, I I had to use that story. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm 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 captivated. I you know I could just listen to you tell more about it. Um, so what I'm I'm curious about. I'm always fascinated by the process of writer how they how they find their stories. In the case of this one, it being kind of like a ghost story. Do you yourself like believe in believe in ghosts? You know, I I play it safe. I say I I I don't disbelieve in ghosts. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I think, probably the same kind of, like, uh, angle that I have on that as well. Yes. Yeah, it's like it would be almost disrespectful to say that I know what mm -hmm. happens after we die. But I am very skeptical, and I think a lot of things that people think are ghosts are really just sound being thrown around in, in ways that, that you can't imagine. I mean, I have definitely heard voices, you know, but, uh, you know, that I thought were coming from a room that may have just been bouncing off of a wall, um, so I think a lot of the what we think of as ghosts are that, but there are definitely some stories out there that you really have a hard time finding. And and I've had a few events, you know, at least one event where I could not explain what it was. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share? I could, yes. Yeah. I, um, so it was it was Halloween, and I was teaching, and my husband had gone up to Vermont to um, get get our uh, this little boat out of the water and dry dock it. And I got this phone call um, in the middle of class saying, you know, your husband's had an accident and he's in the hospital, but he's okay, but he's broken his pelvis. And I'm like, wow, how do you have an accident, break your pelvis and be okay? Like, so I drive up to the hospital and I find out that, yeah, he had fallen out of the boat, which is right, Doc. Um, and I... I guess in those days, I never believed in taking days off. So I was in a little bit of a panic. I had worked all day. I went to visit him in the hospital. It was Halloween night. I was planning to go back to work the next day. And so I felt like I was exhausted and I really needed to sleep. So after I said goodbye to him, him in the hospital, I got a room at the uh, Middlebury. This is Middlebury, Vermont, where um, you know Middle, Middlebury College is. And there is this, this old hotel that is brick. And they had a room, but it was this odd little room that was at the top of the third stair, uh, third floor, just a little, you know, like all the rooms are off to the, to the, to the left, but this was one little room off to the right at the top of the stairs that was kind of small, it barely fit a, a bed. Um, but that was fine. I watched a little ghost whispers, so I definitely had primed myself um, <laughs> and I went to sleep. And I could not sleep because I kept hearing this weird sound. It was like boom, 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 boom. And it would, it was like it was happening all over the room. Like it was boom, 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 over to the left. And then it was boom, 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 over to the right. And it and I was determined to sleep. So I was just like refusing to wake up. I was just kind of turning over and grumbling. And and um at one point I remember I even it seemed to be right at the foot of my bed, and and I'm very tall. So I stuck my feet out and it moved over. And I was just like, what is that sound? Is it like a heating duct or is it a, uh, maybe it was a screen that's kind of bumping, whacking against the window. I could not figure it out, but I, but I was so desperate for sleep that I didn't really investigate. And finally in my sort of haze of sleep, I heard the church bells ringing in the town and they, and they stopped ringing after three strikes. And I thought, Wow, I thought it was midnight because that's it just didn't seem like much time had passed. And I, I thought, wow, the church bells must be broken because it's midnight and they stopped at three. And the sound stopped. So I slept soundly for the rest of the night and I got up in the morning and I have a little travel mug and I go down to the checkout desk and I say, so is there something you'd like to tell me about room, you know, 328 or I can't remember what the number was. And they were like, what? No. And I tell them the whole story and they're like, no, no, we've never. I said, so nobody's ever had any sightings or anything in this. 
Mm-mm. <laughs> they say. So I check out and I leave. And I'm walking and I'm standing on the sidewalk looking up at the window where I had stayed just again to see, was it a branch? You know, mm-hmm. what? I don't see anything that it could have been. And somebody comes running out and they're like, excuse me, ma'am, you forgot your mug. Um, and I'm like, oh, thank you. And and they said, and also I wanted to tell you that there have been two ghosts sighted at this hotel frequently. One is a woman in a ball gown because it used to be a ball room on the third floor. And the other is a little boy with a rubber ball. So I was like, that was that was what yeah. it was. Sound that boom, boom, boom was the ball bouncing. Wow. So, yeah. you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Those are fun. I love uh, just kind of like, uh, you know, just unexplained occurrences. And sometimes it it works. So I, I, I love when people share their 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 ghost stories. Um, yeah, it's kind of scary, but it's also comforting the idea that, you know, you could stay in touch with somebody after they die. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I like the comforting aspect of it. But, I, you know, I think I would be terrified if I actually saw one. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Most definitely. I think I would not be OK. Um just now that we're sharing like ghost stories, I I've never really experienced anything except for my wife and I, before we were married, we were living in kind of like a, an old Atlanta apartment. Old Atlanta is kind of like misleading because everything was kind of like burned during the civil war. But in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they, you know, there were more mansions that were built up and sometime in the, I don't know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, those mansions then got converted into like four or five or six like smaller apartments mm-hmm. and my wife and i were living in one of these old you know former like mansions but now kind of like a little like a little apartment and this is back back in our struggling days you know i was fresh out of grad school and you know my wife had uh like her first big girl job out of college and it wasn't really paying well neither one of us were really like i was working on like i had received like a grant for a screenplay that i had written so i was doing rewrites not really bringing in any like new money and my wife and I just one day were having this conversation she was at work I was in the house and just like tidying up in in our bedroom but it was kind of like you know it was only maybe like 850 square like foot apartment not big by any means right and we were talking about money and then all of a sudden there was just like this loud thud on like the other side and we had like a like a hardwood like hard like real proper hardwood not kind of like laminate but like real proper uh, hardwood uh floor mm-hmm. and my wife you know she was on speaker she was what you know wondering what that was i had no idea and i go like searching through the apartment most random thing ever um my wife when she was uh when she had graduated college uh a family friend and a girl that she used to babysit she made her like the kind of like a not porcelain, but she made her like a piggy bank, like an actual like piggy bank and put a hundred dollars, uh, like a hundred, like gold, silver, you know, gold dollars in, in that piggy bank. So like gave her like a hundred bucks. And during this conversation about money, her piggy bank literally like lop, like jumped off of a bookshelf, like inexplicably. It wasn't mm. like, you know, I was banging, I was on a different side of the room. Um, <laughs> And it wouldn't it would, wouldn't make any sense to be like the bookshelf that I've got behind me. And there was a piggy right. bank in the middle of the bookshelf, like leaping off there onto hardwood floor, mind you. Yeah. It normally yeah. should have shattered yeah. and didn't. And it was uh, I'm like, well, that's weird. Your piggy bank's on the floor. And we're like, yeah, that's, you know, like what happened? Did somebody knock on the door? Was there an earth, like a small like earthquake? And we couldn't figure it out. But then my wife's like, wait a second, like my piggy bank. And I'm like, yeah, it's like. There's like a hundred bucks in there. I'm like, what do you mean there's a hundred dollars? And she explained the story, but it was just kind of like this weird kind of coincidental thing that we had like this, this helpful spirit, like, yeah. you know, say, hey, by the way, if you really need money, there's a hundred bucks right here, which wow. uh, we, we didn't use that. We still have the, uh, you know, she still has all that money, but it was just the most random thing yeah. that could have been a spirit of some sort, more likely than not, you know, just, uh, yeah. Don't know, but there is. Yeah, there, that's a hard weird, one to explain. Yeah, just a weird, inanimate object like leaping off a bookshelf onto hardwood floor and not breaking. Um, it was odd. It was odd. So that's just yeah, kind of my yeah. my ghost story, if you will. Yeah. So I do think it's it's important to stay open to possibilities, yes. to all the possibilities. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
So I think that might actually be one of like the most perfect segues into what we're going to be, you know, spending a little bit more time on today, which is we're going to talk some uh, Mike Flanagan stuff. Now at the intro, and I I did a little bit of his his background, but uh, I don't know how familiar you are with his work apart from, um, you know, the the Haunting of Hill House and Bly Manor, which uh, we will definitely discuss. But um, as a reminder, he's also done Oculus, which is also kind of like a ghost a uh, movie that was kind of like his his first full length film, mm-hmm. um, and then he did like the prequel to the Ouija film. So it was like Ouija, like Origin of Evil, which was another kind of like ghost oh, uh, film. I didn't know um, that. And then recently he did Doctor Sleep, which was the the sequel to uh, The Shining. So definitely related material, like source as far as like ghost stuff. But predominantly, what we're going to be talking about today. Will be a couple of his Netflix films in or a series, uh, anthology haunting series of Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor. So, um, why did you, other than maybe kind of relating to what you're talking about, why did why were you interested in discussing his work or specifically like the Haunting of Hill House, for example? Well, I I think that in a way, The Haunting of Hill House, well, first of all, I loved the book, uh, Shirley Jackson. And, mm. and actually in high school, I was I was dating and a little bit of college, the uh, the grandson of Shirley Jackson, who I, I didn't I mean, I, I knew who Shirley Jackson was, but I didn't quite I didn't quite uh, get it. So um, so I had always loved, you know, The Lottery and The Haunting of Hill House. And I mean, that that book set starts with such a beautiful paragraph um, and that was one of the things that I was looking up before. Um, it starts with uh, no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. That is such a beautiful beginning, uh, the absolute reality. So that question of what is reality, you know, that is a theme in my own work. And um, and that's what drew me to that book, of course. And, you know, The Haunting Hill has that question of, is um, is the main character sane or is this house really haunted or is she insane or is the house haunted? But then when Flanagan did his interpretation, he really took huge liberties and really mm-hmm. re, um, reinterpreted it and recast it. And I, and I actually really love what he did with it. I mean, I think of them as two separate pieces. And what I loved about that was not only was the it was very atmospheric and wonderful, and I think um, but but this quote, when he says, you know, uh, a ghost can be a lot of things, a memory, a daydream, a secret, grief, anger, guilt. But in my experience, most times they're just what we want to see. You know, so, of course, the main character is a skeptic. And, you know, the uh, the trope for that is, um, you know, the skeptic gets in trouble. That's another reason why I don't say I don't. <laughs> Good mantra. So. Yeah. So and and he really plays that theme out. So you see all all the characters are haunted by something different, mm-hmm. by guilt. You know, one the one sister has had an affair. Um, you know, the uh, one has an addiction. Um, so they all and and then I guess in a way, uh, the main character, his what's haunting him is his anger at his father that he felt like his father let his mother down. So. I loved how he played that out. And then I don't want to put any spoiler alerts, but he also does some interesting things with conceiving of ghosts as time travel. Yeah. That, and and that's that shows up, I think, in Bly Manor as well. That idea that maybe we're not seeing a spirit. Maybe we're just seeing a person at a different time. Like the times have collided, like the wrinkle in time. Yeah, it goes into something um, just kind of even like a subjectivity of like reality anyway, you know, in, in, in many respects, you know, like, um, and then just the, the, the time traveling element that also what's great about, about, uh, well, I mean, there's so many things that are great about the, uh, the hunting of Hill house, but what I love is just kind of each episode kind of like focusing on like an individual, like family member, you know, and it's a 10 series, but you, you mm-hmm. get uh, a Nell episode and you get, um, I can't believe I just forgot uh, Kate Siegel's. Uh, I forget which. Um, I'm shoot. sure names. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember all there. Uh, but basically, they, they each 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 of the the Crane kids have their own like focused episode, and 
even though you could you can make the argument that uh, Michael Hoosman, I think, is like the the kind of like the main protagonist of it. Yeah, but you can yeah. also say that they're all kind of central because they the each episode there's a narrative that focuses on that particular character, which gives it a lot of like um, strength to it. So, like for example, like the for me, there there are two real standout episodes, and they kind of like tie together. Because you see these people kind of like in their own individual lives, and then this tragedy brings them all together. So like these two episodes that I really think of is like the the bent neck lady, uh, that oh, yeah. that episode, which I think is just really, really strong. And yeah. then um, also, what is it? Uh, the two storms episode where you've got the storm when they're in Hill House and then the storm when they're kind of all brought back together why i'm really drawn to the the two uh storms episode is there's the scene at like the funeral home and the way they construct like the the scene at the funeral home and as well as um in the mansion is just the insanity that it took for them to even make those episodes with like these really long scenes and i'll mm-hmm. i mean i'll get into that in one second but i want to talk about like the the funeral parlor itself because mm-hmm. i live like a mile away from it and uh um, really yeah 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 uh about two years ago i was watching this show and i was kind of uh like doing like a virtual watch along with some friends and i'm like you know uh just watching it you know like oh yeah that funeral parlor da, 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 like interesting um but like i was dropping my daughter off from from daycare so she would i guess she would have been like four at the time and i'm at a traffic light just had a traffic light and I look, you know, just look to my right. I'm like, that building looks really familiar. And, you know, as I'm waiting this, for this light to turn green, it dawns on me. I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's the funeral parlor. That's in wow. the show that I'm watching right now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But, I, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, well, no, I was just saying the, the bent neck lady, um, you know, but, well, again, I don't want to give it away. So the, the question of what is she doing? Why is she haunting this child? You know, is it malevolent or is it a an attempt to warn her? Mm-hmm. It's um, it, it, it's like I like listeners. I want to like spoil this, but I, I don't want to like this is something you have to see for yourself. Yeah. It, it's just so beautifully crafted. Um, and each episode, I think, is strong. But I wanted to single out the bent neck, a bent neck lady episode. And this two storms, um, because like, for example, and I, I got this like kind of like quote from like Mike Flanagan, but essentially they were doing 18 page scenes without any cuts. And to make that work is uh, every shot had like 100 people standing on each other's shoulders and having to execute dozens or hundreds of tasks. So basically, it's kind of like d- designed to be like a single you got like these long single takes, hmm. but not only did the actors have to deliver their lines, but like crew members were also on hand to like move around props and equipment and to basically uh, support like the choreographed scenes. Right. Uh, so like you essentially had like a 17 minute continuously like operating. Uh, so you're watching one single take, but as we're following around their, their crew members moving things around. So it just uh, goes very, very like seamlessly. And so, um, according to Mike Flanagan, we shut down the company for over a month to choreograph and rehearse each of those five long takes. So there are like five of those takes. The longest was 17 minutes. Uh, There was no room for error at all. And if we made a mistake, we had to start all over. We rehearsed for over a month with our second team stand-ins before even folding the cast into the process. So um, insane, insane. Like, this is for a Netflix show. You know what I mean? And... um, which I guess I should bring up is the fact that I think this was the the first film under this contract where Mike Flanagan had kind of like a a dedicated contract with Netflix. So he did this, um, obviously Haunting a Bly Manor, uh, Midnight I mean, Mass, I mean, and then no, most no. recently I can't believe I forgot just the 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 name of something he just did with them. And now the the final the final thing that I'll be doing with Netflix is coming out on for uh i think thursday the the 12th of october uh yeah. and that is fall of the house of usher so as you can see i'm, I'm you open the door or open the pandora's box for me to kind of like nerd <laughs> on like mike flanagan stuff i really yeah, yeah. do uh love uh love his style and 
it's just, I don't know, he's a refreshing new filmmaker that is, is not just making horror films, but he's mm-hmm. doing really great stuff and um, very artistic and like the themes of like grief and the themes of, of fear, you know, he, he's tackling them in I think really interesting ways, you know, like not just like fear of like a child being afraid of a ghost, which is kind of like a fear, but also like the, fr- the fear of losing a family member and, and the, the fear of not being able to save somebody or protect somebody. Um, it's more than just like jump scares, even though the show does a really good job of those too. Yeah. It, 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 he he's using something very like visceral and real. And I think just executed very beautifully, I think. Yeah. I think also there's a, I mean, I also like, I, you know, I mentioned high spears because I, there's a genre of sort of funny ghost stories, which I enjoy. I don't know why, maybe it's because of the contrast of the humor with the, you know, the death that I enjoy, but but um, also the ghost stories that I like tend to be ghost stories that are a bit sad, like the mystery at the heart of it is really just terribly, terribly sad. Um, I'm thinking of, um, you know, uh, Guillermo Torme's um, Pan's Labyrinth is just mm. very, very sad. And um, I think it's The Awakenings. He has, there's another Guillermo del Toro one that's, that is about the... Um, the orphanage. In fact, that's oh, what Devil's Backbone, I believe. No, the orphanage is called, and it's oh, okay. So, at the heart of it is just this sad story about this child that's gone missing. So, I guess I have a you know I must lean towards the melancholy. Um, but I'm but I love ghost stories where the ghosts aren't just pure evil. That the the issue is the misunderstanding between the living and the dead, and that there's that if you can bridge that that misunderstanding, things can be resolved. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Flanagan has that in in almost all his pieces. And, you know, and when I finished watching The Haunting of Bly Manor, I thought, well, that's it. You know, nobody can do another movie on ghosts because he's covered all the bases. You know, he, <laughs> has, he has covered all the metaphors for what a ghost is in, in you know, real life, whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully it doesn't stop because I'm, I'm enjoying what he's been doing. And, you know, uh, and... Even though obviously um, Hill House and Bly Manor share, uh, well, obviously they share some cast members and uh, kind of like a same kind of music and and obviously kind of like overall idea, you couldn't really be much more like further from. I mean, uh, Bly Manor I think is a complete one eighty shift from really what he was kind of looking at and exploring. Um, in in hill house now i think it's a little bit more of a slow burn Mm -hmm. i don't think it um i don't think it's nearly as scary but where he kind of tapped into the idea of uh like ghosts and kind of like a like a time traveling i mean that's really one of kind of like the central themes that he's kind of really looking at in bly manor uh Mm -hmm. it's very non-linear i mean extremely Mm -hmm. non-linear is is bly manor and uh, obviously, that one's based on what was it the uh, the turn of the screw, which I had not read. I don't yeah. know yeah. much about that, that piece. So, pardon me. Yeah, I've read that too. The screw, turn of the screw. It's it's wonderful. It's a wonderful story. And in that, you don't know. Again, that's one of those books where you're like, is the governess losing her mind? And she's it, there's this hint in the in the Henry James story that she has been possibly molested. And that that's why she's imagining these ghosts. But you never know by the end whether she's imagined them or they really happened. And, you know, and, and there are terrible consequences one way or the other. Um, yeah. um, was there, let's see, I mean, we've kind of talked about both of them in kind of like a, like a general sense. Was there anything specific that you wanted to kind of look at, explore out of those or just kind of just just kind of like chat about them? <laughs> Yeah, I don't have any anything specific. I think another stylistic thing that I find interesting about Flanagan is how he takes risks uh, with these long monologues. Like mm. there's always a point in the middle of them where a character goes on for like five minutes and it's this quite beautiful speech. Um, I can't think of what the monologue is in, in um, The Haunting of Hill House, but in Midnight Mass, it's when the two main characters are talking about what happens after you die. And uh, 
the male character whose name I can't remember, uh, gives this beautiful speech about, you know, sort of what I believe, sort of like, you know, all your energies stop and then, you know, your like kind of the electricity stops and then your cells start to kind of dissipate and then you, you know, become part of the universe. And, um, you know, I think he's kind of a secular humanist. Um, and and I just really appreciate that. Yeah. Reminds me a little bit of, um, if you've ever read the series, the Golden Compass series, His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. I know and, it well, but I have not read it. Yeah, the Golden Compass is very good. But when you read all three of them together, again, he's kind of a secular humanist and he's promote. Uh, he's really presenting a cosmos that um, backs that up. And um, the... In, in that one, there's a, I think it's in the third novel, he presents an, a possibility of an underworld where spirits go and they get kind of trapped uh, in this, in the labyrinth of the underworld. And, and uh, there are harpies that can lead them out. And the way that you can get a harpy to lead you out is by telling them the story of your life. So if you're a good storyteller and you thought about your life and you can tell the story of your life, you can make it out of this underworld and dissipate into the universe, um, which is good. And if you can't, if you have not lived a reflective life and don't know how to tell a story, you're trapped forever in this labyrinth. And I, I just thought that was a wonderful concept. I'm curious, like as a as a writer yourself, and I mean, we've just spent, you know, better part of a half hour talking about, I mean, Mike Flanagan at his core, he himself is a writer, obviously he's, he's a director, but most of the stuff he he's, you know, he's writing the story, he's writing the screenplays for these yeah. as well. Obviously this is somebody that's very, very busy. What, and you've been, you've been doing this for, you know, quite some time uh, yourself, but let's talk about when you're not at your peak performance and maybe the idea well is kind of drying up. Like, how do you, I don't know, like uh, to use the like writer's block, you know, like what are what are some ways that 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 you can kind of like overcome overcome that? Well, I've got a lot of experience with writer's block. <laughs> so uh, I think the first thing is to understand the writing process and to understand that there are times when you know, the fields lie fallow and there nothing is growing there and there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to let them lie there or, um, and you have to feed them, you know, plant some clover um, to get some nitrogen in the soil. And the, the analogous experience would be as a writer, you know, you need to do different things. You need to go out and sort of feed your creativity by, um, you know, watching other people's art and, in, you know, traveling and, uh, having deep conversations with people. Um, so, you know, I think not pushing it, understanding that, okay, I might be in a fallow period or I might be in a gestating period. So when I, when I, when I think you had asked me, you know, how did I write beyond sight? How did that happen? You know, um, I started writing kind of like a, like a, like a dictionary of like, what is a ghost? What might cause a ghost? And why do they manifest in different ways? Like, how would I explain why some ghosts are these orbs and some can talk and some can't talk and some you can feel and some can't, you know, why is it that we have these different manifestations? So I started to kind of answer that question for myself of like, well, it all has to do with how they died, where they died, what was going on in their lives, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I, so I, as I was writing this, I was thinking, what am I going to do with this? I mean, I have no story. I'm just writing notes on possibilities for, you know, ghost theory. <laughs> um, but then when I was done with that and I, I start, oh, and I was walking through the North Woods. This is a, a part of a scene. It's a, it's a beautiful trail on the Skidmore College campus where these old mansions used to be. And as I was walking on that trail, there are still a, a couple of um, like little ruins, like just there's like a big cistern, a big brick cistern that is kind of broken down. And um, and I thought, well, what, what, I wonder what that is. And so then when I did some research and found out uh, about Henry Hilton and those mansions that used to be there, that kind of a story started to form. So I guess... 
what worked there was I was writing notes. I didn't know why or what I was going to do with them, but I wrote them anyway. I had faith in the, the process. And then uh, as I was taking walks and thinking about my writing, taking walks, I let be, the environment inspire me. So, you know, um, and when I started to write the story, then I wasn't interested in writing the ghost theory anymore. And I thought, isn't that interesting? You know, I'm glad I wrote that then because now I don't feel like it at all. So I think it's a matter of listening to yourself, understanding the process of creativity um, and, you know, not fighting too hard, you know, following the energy, basically. You know, so, I mean, there's a lot of writing that is a struggle and you do just have to bash your way through it. But sometimes it's better to go, if this feels bad, I don't need to analyze why it's feeling bad. I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to do something that feels good. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned a moment ago that also like appreciating other people's uh, art. You know, this is one of the things that you that you do. So what do you what do you read? What do you what do you watch? Well, I watch way too much, too many series. I really love these, you know, telenovelas, as they're called. You know, they're mm. because I realize this new kind of Netflix series. Um, it's it, they are like novels, and I've I've grown to prefer that format to the movie format. So, I have to say, probably my first love is really movies, and you know, the visual. Um, I love having the sound and the the visual together. Um, Novels, you know, some of my favorite writers are, you know, the magical realist, you know, uh, Gabriela Garcia Marquez, Louise Erdrich, Toni Morrison. They're all people that are dealing with culture clashes. Um, and I just, I connect with that. I relate to that. Um, I don't travel. I used to travel, like my family traveled all over the world. So maybe that kind of satiated my traveling appetite. I do most of my traveling in the United States now. Um but, you know, I, I think, um, I don't know, you know, going to museums, uh, listening to music. Um, sometimes when I'm really, when, I, when, uh, when I'm, sometimes there are periods where I don't write and I just do crafts, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm, um, and then, you know, I might make a quilt and then I'm sick of making quilts. I don't want to make quilts <laughs> anymore. Done, you know, and then I go back to writing or I play viola. So I might get into playing music and then I'm done with music, you know, so I just allow myself to move around in the different forms of expression. I love dancing. Um, so, but I always come back to writing. So. Mm -hmm. And you've been, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been teaching for, if my math is correct, like you said, like over 30 years now? 30, 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. At a community college, which is um, at SUNY Adirondack, which is hard work because we have to teach five courses a semester five writing courses. So, you know, it's the, the, you know, it's not like Scantron where you can just run the papers through a mill and get the right answers. Um, you know, every paper you read, you're like inside somebody's head and trying to figure out where they got made the mistake and how you can explain to them how to make it better uh, without crushing their ego. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's like a very delicate dance that creates, requires a lot of creativity, which is wonderful. I mean, every day is different. I don't think I could survive a job where every day was the same. But, right. But it's also, you know, very tiring. Yeah. I mean, obviously, to do something for 30 years, you obviously, I, I assume one would love uh, if you're going to be in anything for, for that long. But, I mean, obviously... Yeah, we do things for money, but we also do things for for like for experiences, what you get out of it. So what are, you know, what are, I don't know, to use, forgive me for using kind of like a general like question, but what, you know, what is like maybe one of like the most valuable lessons you've learned yourself as a teacher? I think, I think, I don't know if it was like Robert Browning, but there was like this quote, like every adult needs a child to teach. It's the way adults learn. So I, I yes. love the idea of like, teachers as learners, you know, what, what are, what is something that you as a, as a teacher uh, have learned about yourself or writing or, or anything just in general? It's tough. I mean, I, I think, first of all, what I love about teaching is that like, I don't think I would like teaching math because it's all about math. I mean, I guess if you really love math and, you know, but what I love about teaching writing is that I get to hear all these stories of people's lives in this very intimate way. And I guess I, I love people. So I'm kind of endlessly fascinated and moved by their stories. 
and uh, it, teaching at SUNY Adirondack, you know, the, the, the people who end up going to community college, they, there's a variety of reasons. They're sort of self-selecting, like they either didn't do so well in high school or they didn't want to leave home or, you know, they loved their family and wanted to stay home or they wanted to save money. Um, so uh, I often, the stories that the students tell me are sometimes just unbelievable. Like you can't believe how much tragedy strikes one family. You know, you just like, you know, where there's multiple cases of cancer and deaths and suicides and poverty. And and then they keep on, these are students who get knocked down over and over and over, and they keep standing back up and trying again. Now, you know, a lot of them get knocked down and walk away and don't come back, but an awful lot of them, you see them the next year, like they failed out the semester, they're having a nervous breakdown and they come back. And I just really admire that, that grit Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess one of the things I learned is, you know, don't make assumptions about why people aren't doing their work. You know, um, I don't believe in laziness. I, I think that people procrastinate because most often because they're afraid, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're nervous about the writing. Writing is a very self-exposing thing to do, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, I mean, you you see your own contradictions. You're sharing all this these secrets and you're opening yourself up to judgment. I mean, that's terrifying. So I think a lot of students procrastinate because of that. And then, you know, it's embarrassing. They're embarrassed because they can't, you know, they don't have know their grammar. Um, but of course I learned a lot of my grammar by teaching it. My, the way I learned grammar was by being read to. So I just absorbed it. I just knew the sound of the, the, the correct sound of a sentence, but I couldn't tell you why. Right. Um, and I learned the rules by teaching them, you know. So. Well, thank you. Um, in our final couple moments, obviously, we've got a brand new novel out. Uh, how can how can the the listeners find it? How and how how can they find you? Well, the best thing would be to go to my website, lollydavidson.com. It looks and Lolly spelled L-A-L-E. It looks like Lale. So LaleDavidson.com. And then that, that has all the links to my various books. And, uh, and you can also find me more easily on Barnes & Noble. It is harder to find me on Amazon. I don't know why. They re- they removed a bunch of my books and then only replaced the Kindle. And when you search, you can't find me. It's hmm. just bizarre. So, uh, so oh, well. So, <laughs> so go to Barnes & Noble. If you search my name on Google, that those are the first links that'll show up anyway. <laughs> Perfect. Now, in the the final question, this is always like a weird, weird thing, but I, I hear people ask the question all the time, so I'm I'm a victim of it as well. Like you have a brand new uh novel out. So asking you what is what's next for you, it seems kind of like uh pointless. But um what are some of the things are you know what are some of the things that you're going to do in in support of 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 your uh, of the of your new novel uh beyond sight well i'm going to keep on uh you know i'm actually doing some performances because i'm also a storyteller so i'm doing some local performances in bennington and um and so i'll continue to do readings at like libraries and you know book groups book uh book clubs and things like that um you know, posting on Facebook. So, and doing these podcasts. So that's how I plan to do kind Mm -hmm. of a slow, steady um, promotion. And uh, I don't, I, I am a little worried about the writing part because I've been, I've been revising and editing for three years now because I I pumped out one book after another, but they were all revisions of things I already read written. Mm -hmm. So I love revising. Um, it's so much easier than generating. And there's a part of me going, "Uh Oh, what if I forgot how to generate a new story? Like, what if I just know? And I tried to force it the other day and it was just awful. It's just like (laughs) everything that came out was bland and flat and lifeless. And I thought, see, you know, I wasn't trusting myself. So I do have an idea for a book of short stories um, that I really want to tackle sort of the American zeitgeist. I mean, this is such a pivotal moment in history for us that I really want to write about, you know, kind of what's going on. And so much of it is so absurd and surreal. It's a weird I, time we're living in. It's, it's just weird. insane time that we're in right yeah. now. And so I really want to write about that. I, I don't know if I'm going to focus mostly on, you know, the environment or focus mostly on 
our the history, our repressed history. I mean, talk about, you know, America is sort of haunted by its past, like sort of all the evil things we've done that we don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know where I'm going to go with it, but I but I'm envisioning a little bizarre in a, a book of bizarre, intense stories about America. That's, well, <laughs> that's well, kind of underground. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Just uh, kind of like just trying to make sense. I love that though. Um, yeah. So there's definitely something there. So keep, keep uh, plugging away at that, but I wish you nothing but the best on your latest one. I'm going to get my hands on it. Um, I'm, I'm a sucker for, uh, for, for ghost stories as well. So I just want to say, Lolly, thank you. you. It's been an absolute pleasure hanging out with you this past hour. And, um, and yeah, uh, all the best to uh, you and and your new novel and please stay in touch anytime you want to talk about anything, uh, you know, maybe you want to come on and talk about Pan's Labyrinth or something like that. You know, any, anytime you want to come and chat about any movie, open invitation. Thank you. I want to learn about your work as well. So um, I assume that your listeners already know where to find you. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, when it comes to right now, what I'm I'm part of the reason why I have a podcast is I uh, I got into I don't it wasn't even necessarily writer's block because I've got I've got multitude of things that I just haven't done. Like, and the truth is, my only excuse is, and I'm doing some that's very very time consuming now in podcasting. This was a a way to do something because I didn't think I had any time for writing, but this is every <laughs> bit as time consuming. Uh, but it really just came down to my wife and I, we had a, a baby and I just wasn't really able to dedicate the time that I really wanted to, uh, yeah. to, to focus on writing. But I, I went to school for, uh, well, once upon a time, I was a journalist in the Navy and then got out mm-hmm. of the military, then went to, went to college and got my master's at Carnegie Mellon in dramatic writing, specifically writing oh, for uh, the stage and screen. And uh-huh. so, you know, I've written a couple of screenplays, a couple of plays, and I've got <laughs> three three more that i but that are well one is fully outlined i've got one kind of outline and then i've got kind of a a strong one act uh idea that maybe that can become something so i've got my projects it's just a matter of saying you know what i'm going to actually write down these the, these these stories that I've got. So, um, yeah, it, I wish I could say it was like writer's block. I can't think of what I, it's just actually, you mentioned, you know, like it's not laziness. In my case, I think it is a little bit of laziness. I'm not afraid. Yeah. Like I want to do this. It's just the, yeah. can I dedicate the amount of time that I want to, to, uh, to really like tackle them. But that's, that's hopefully, I keep saying that next year is the year. But next year is a year that I'm going to because I'm uh, one of the fun things that I get to do is I'm also I also like copy edit uh, for the Austin Film Festival. So, um, you know, because I I was a quarter finalist uh, for one of the screenplays I had written for them. And so I've uh, this past year, I've been like copy editing uh, the notes that they give the screenwriter. So Mm -hmm. basically somebody writes a screenplay, they have their reader, they create notes based on hey your first act fell apart here or this was good this is what the story is about well austin film festival send those to me and then i just copy edit so it doesn't sound like this the the reader is absolutely murdering this poor writer (laughs) and uh so i'm I'm still kind of in it but i'm not i'm not necessarily as immersed as i would like to be again yeah, you know, uh, two things that might be helpful to think about. One was something that um, William Kennedy told me um, about he when he wrote Ironweed, which that was a book that took him 11 years to write. And he said that he had re- he rewrote it in many different forms, including in plays. He would take entire characters out, put new characters mm-hmm. in. And then what he said now, what what he did later was he would he would take notes on his novel for two years before he would start writing it. So I thought that was really instructive because I used to be really hard on myself when I was just writing about my writing. Like I was just writing notes to myself. I didn't count that as writing, but now it's like, of course, everything counts. And what I say to my students, if you can't write it, write about it, because, you know, like write about it 
you know, without fear, not like, oh, but, you know, I'm, I'm worried that this is going to come out badly, but write about like, I want this to come out this way. Here's what mm. I'm trying to achieve. And if you write about it in that kind of constructive way, what happens is you kind of just slide into writing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of opening a door. So if you can't write it, write about it, but also, you know, allow those, those ideas to gestate. And, um, and then of course you have to be willing. I think the other fear of writing is that in your mind, you have this gorgeous scintillating thing that's floating around. You go to write it. It's, it's just straw and, and dirt. And you're just like, what happened to this beautiful thing in my head? I guess it was just illusion, you know, uh, you know, that that's where the rewriting comes in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I could talk to you about uh, about writing for days. I can talk to you yeah. about, you know, uh, I've just really enjoyed this hour. So thank I you. Too. Thank you. Um, and again, you. all the all the best to you. Same to you. All right. Lolly Davidson. Again, thank you so much to Lolly Davidson for a wonderful interview. And thank you for being a wonderful, wonderful uh, audience. Um, hopefully you enjoyed yourself every bit as much as I did, and you'll come back. If you've gotten this far and you haven't subscribed to the channel, please do so. Leave a voicemail. Uh, feel free to share a ghost story. I, I know I referenced one earlier, but I've got a couple more ghost stories. Maybe I'll, I'll save those for a later time if, if, uh, if anybody else wants to talk some more ghost stuff. But that's all I've got for this week. Please check out the show notes. I'll have information on Lolly. I'll have information on Stanford Cinema. I'll have some information on what we covered today in Hill House and Bly Manor. And especially, happy Friday the 13th uh, in October. This doesn't happen very often. So I know I'm pumped. You're probably not even listening to this on Friday the 13th, but it happened, y'all. It's a real thing. So that's all I've got. And we'll see you next time on another episode of Stanford Cinema.